one of the things we've spent a lot of time thinking about in the last many months, and we're going to continue this work, and you'll hear more from the administration on this, is getting us out of that acute emergency phase where the U.S. government is buying the vaccines, buying the treatments, buying the diagnostic tests. We need to get out of that business over the long run. And so my hope is that in 2023, um, you're going to see the commercialization of almost all of these products. Some of it is actually going to begin this fall. Support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. As a thank you, you will get access to our second weekly bonus episode just for patrons. This week, we had Abby Cardis back on the show to talk about the social determinants of health. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order health communism, or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So for today's episode, Artie, Phil, and I are joined by friend of the panel, Justin Feldman. Justin is an epidemiologist of social inequality and state violence and a health and human rights fellow at Harvard's FXB Center. And he is back on the show today for the ninth time. Justin, welcome to the death panel. Good to be here. I can't believe it's been nine times. I think next time we have to get you like a commemorative coin or like a special jacket or something <laughs> I, w- I want my death panel challenge coin <laughs> <laughs> um thanks again for joining us today justin i'm excited because we're going to talk about the latest cdc covid guidance which was eased late last week uh just in time for the start of the school year and today we're going to get to the bottom of these guideline changes and show you why these changes aren't actually a reflection of public opinion but are more about continuing a project of shifting uh, any and all remaining responsibility from the state to individuals. And currently in the United States, COVID is still a problem. We have over 41,000 people in the hospital, over 450 deaths a day. That's more than 3,300 deaths a week. That would be over 160,000 deaths a year if it stays at that level. And that is three times the deaths of a bad flu year. So this is also to say nothing about long covid the long-term vascular impacts of COVID infections, which we very clearly haven't even fully realized the scope of yet. And according to the New York Times COVID data tracker, since January 2020, at least one in four people in the United States has been infected with COVID, and at least one in 321 people have died. And I think the question everyone is asking themselves is, will it really be possible to even maintain this unacceptably high level of deaths while ignoring infections, which is the plan in the new CDC recommendations. But before we get into the bigger points about how these recent changes continue and solidify the sociological production of the end of the pandemic, I want to get to the bottom of exactly what changed and what some of the justifications for these changes have been. And then I think we can talk about what these changes actually signal for the fall and for returning to in-person school. Now, Justin, you were looking at... um, side-by-sides of some of the earlier recommendations with the newest recommendations. What's the thing that sort of stood out to you most about these changes as a sort of bottom line? Yeah, um, I would kind of think about these guidance changes in two ways. One is the kind of justifications. They are 
using to sell them. And I think those are actually more important. CDC is saying, as you said, they're basically no longer trying to stop transmission. That's not exactly new, but they're using new kinds of arguments, especially this argument around what they're calling population immunity. Um, So whereas much earlier in the pandemic, we had the promise of herd immunity that enough people would get vaccinated or infected, and that would block transmission to others, and and we would be at very low levels of COVID. They're now using a a, a different concept that they, they have invented called population immunity, basically saying that people have been infected or vaccinated, and therefore, if they get infected again, um, they're less likely to have severe disease, which is true, but it's not like it's not we're not we're not in a good place. Um, a, a lot of people are still dying or becoming disabled from, from COVID. The actual changes to the guidelines themselves are not that uh, profound, I would say. Some of them are more important than others. The thing that will have the most impact on people are the things relating to schools, because some schools do follow or state government education departments do follow CDC guidelines in terms of policy. And the biggest change there is the shift away from uh, quarantine or or what, what was called test to say. Basically, we had earlier in the pandemic, if one person tested positive in a classroom, everyone would stay home for 10 days. That gradually got eroded. Um, that's not to say that happened in practice. Right, exactly. Right. It happened in some places. Right. Um, not everyone was following this. That gradually got eroded to a lower number of days to only people who were within six feet or three feet of the person who was infected, uh, depending on whether they were wearing a mask. This other option got added called test to stay, where instead of uh, quarantining an exposed person, could take at least two tests within one week. And if they tested negative, they could continue to be in school. So this has been chipped away to the extent it's even been followed. And yeah, the latest recommendation is is basically neither stay home nor test if you've been exposed in, in a classroom. There are some other changes, but again, I think they, they will probably have less uh, policy implications. So Justin, you've been following these guidelines for a while. And, you know, I wonder if you think about it, the, the thing that occurred to me was that like the big change in a way was in February, which was, wasn't just like a change in the guidelines. It was like the, the February change was like an entire gestalt shift from the CDC. It was like, don't think about the pandemic like a pandemic. Think or about maybe it like, don't think about the pandemic. Or period. don't think about it at all. Right. That seems like that was the big change. But the way that that change was softened in a way that the which was like a really like if you think about it, like a really radical uh, departure from even like what the gradual changes had been or accommodations had been. Uh, but it was a pretty radical departure. But the the way that I think that the blow was softened uh, for people who were cr- critical of it was they were like, well, this is just this is based on what we know now. And this is like based on what is happening now. And that if if uh, this, this situation changes or like our knowledge, you know, is altered in some way, like whatever, we'll 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 revise at that time. Whereas I wonder if you see what's happening here is like one, they're doubling down on what they did before. And mm-hmm. two they're trying to come up with some way of justifying why current conditions and what's likely to happen in the fall won't actually warrant going back to the pre-February status quo. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a challenge in periodizing this, as as historians <laughs> know, might <it's>... say. <laughs> but yeah, there, there has there has been a process. If if we think about the the Biden administration, um, mm-hmm. there have been attempts to basically end not only the um, non pharmaceutical interventions meant to uh, disrupt transmission but also uh, non-pharmaceutical intervention policies, uh, but also to shift social norms such that people go about their lives and don't feel burdens um, with uh, the the fear of, of getting COVID or transmitting COVID to others, especially with an eye towards bringing back the service sector economy to full levels. And there have been attempts at that that, Failed. I, I think especially about the May 2021 shift to no longer recommend masks for mm-hmm. um, vaccinated people, among among other things. For for me, the the one of the more troubling moments was the late December shift in isolation guidance. So that's yeah. what to do when you are knowingly infected, um, and that's when it was cut from a recommended 10 days to five days based on essentially no evidence, um, but but they, they had certain vibes that uh, yeah. pe- people would be less infectious after five days. Uh, they, they, they were going to produce some kind of scientific justification. Uh, they didn't because there was none. But now over the months, we've had evidence accumulating that a lot of people are still probably transmissible after five days, um, though it's a little a little bit hard to to study that epidemiologically. Um, and this, you know, in another world, uh, revised guidance could have been changed to reflect the science and provide a longer isolation period. And I don't know, build momentum in more progressive states to continue or renew um, paid sick leave uh, laws that, that were put in place on a temporary basis. Um, but what we instead have is acknowledging that testing exists. Uh, <laughs> Right. But now instead of using testing as a way to extend isolation, they're using it as a way to shorten the recommended post-isolation mask period. So they're saying five days of isolation, five more days of masking. But if you test negative, uh, you can stop wearing your mask. So so, um, I see this as a a gradual continuation over the last year and a half of the Biden administration aimed at removing non-pharmaceutical intervention policies and removing uh, social norms that were aimed at preventing illness and transmission. Um, Those efforts to normalize high levels of transmission and sickness and death have faced setbacks in the past, but they are going full speed ahead with it. They, They have been. I don't, I don't see this right now as a major paradigm shift really except that uh i think people are really struggling out there to put a narrative around our current moment in the pandemic and i think you know the the title of Catherine wu's article in the atlantic um that this this is a soft closing of the pandemic is how it's meant to be framed so Mm -hmm. they're they're saying like if you were unsure about uh what you're supposed to do now? Well, we're going to reassure you that it is nothing. Unless, unless you're a person who who sees yourself as high risk, then um, then still it's be on careful. You. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And so here, I mean, and this is kind of the thing that I think is most interesting to me about these particular changes. And I don't want to downplay them. I mean, any sort of reduction in these guidelines, especially for how much it became kind of a, a, you know, a media event around this and what that sort of signals in terms of you hear every single time we see the headline CDC eases guidelines, it always is, you know, it, it sends a pretty clear message beyond whatever the actual specifics are. And so, you know, again, not to downplay that, but, and, but I would say, of course, um, I think from what a lot of us were expecting based on what was sort of telegraphed in the media, about CDC showing draft documents to different publications and getting all of these um, write-ups that were saying, you know, this is coming. I think considering what was sort of telegraphed, to use an overutilized pandemic word, I think these changes ended up rather relatively mild. But I think the, um, you know, it, it is interesting to me, though, and I wonder kind of where we all think that this comes from, because I think there are a lot of possible interpretations uh uh, of you know what it what it means exactly, but it is very interesting to me that there are so many different, unique but similar takes, like the different but the same takes that are saying essentially that this this specifically this these sort of ultimately relatively minor again not to downplay it they're they're bad changes but still relatively minor in the scheme of things. Um, changes to the CDC's guidance constitutes this massive paradigm shift in the pandemic. For example, the New York Times says of this, quote, the changes shift much of the responsibility for risk reduction from institutions to individuals. Mm -hmm. Washington Post, quote, a strategic shift that puts more of the onus on individuals rather than on schools, businesses, and other institutions. The Hill, the new guidance puts the onus on individuals to assess their own personal risk levels rather than businesses, governments, or schools. That Atlantic article that you mentioned, quote, this new relaxation of COVID rules is one of the most substantial to date. The virus won't budge, nor will Americans. So the administration <laughs> is shifting its stance instead. And I would just say to all of these statements, like, where the fuck have you been? No offense, but <laughs> exactly. this is literally, I mean, as you're saying, this has been sort of the ideological project of the Biden administration. That's one of the, that's become in the last more than a year, one of the main things that we talk about. The whole thing is built on this like house of cards of personal responsibility, effectively, at this point. I don't know what the pandemic of the unvaccinated line, for instance, was, if not a personal responsibility line i clearly as you know phil's mentioning like the community levels uh change i think that's a really you know like there's all these p moments that we could call this turning point towards you're on your own right well yeah well and uh, this over is over a year ago walensky said your health is in your hands it's like there's no clearer message than that well, um right. and it's and it's worth and it's worth highlighting right like you couldn't come up you couldn't write in a writer's room <laughs> A more like reductio ad absurdum like uh, version of like what neoliberal public health like what neoliberal public health might look like. Uh, you know, it's like yes, we're going to trust. We're going to assume that you, the individual, will be able to do some essentially impossibly difficult calculation uh, in your head about what your risk level is. Right, but I mean, so this. I think that, you know, the question remains, I do, I am interested in the degree to which it seems like at least to some extent it is 
sort of message received now at this point, right? Is it just, I mean, I am, I am genuinely curious. Is it just that the CDC had to say like the CDC and the Biden administration had to say over and over again, this is a matter of personal responsibility. We are clear, like, you know, we are cleaning our hands of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and because th- the slow ongoing process of it being over, you know, it's, it's just, it strikes me as strange that this would be the moment when all of a sudden just I mean, maybe it's the, the like the message that we've been, you know, pounding at the gates about forever has sort of come through. I don't think it'd be surprising. Uh, you know, none of the things that we're saying about how those long arc of this will be probably surprising to people who've been listening to the show for a long time. But I do think it's, you know, I, I wonder if it is just possible that it has become clear to enough people that the language of personal responsibility is a problem within the pandemic and within the way that we've kind of done this, you know, horrendous neoliberal overall pandemic response. Right. Right. Because I think it's, there's nothing about the current changes that actually hasn't really been there from the beginning of the Biden pandemic response. I went back to our episode from December COVID year two, and I went back to your post, Justin, that you did, um, which was the big long four part post of the timeline of Biden's pandemic response for the first year. And you know, both of these two things that we, you know, we all did, like, we were very focused on the fact that this language of personal responsibility was really actually what Biden was proposing to come in with. You know, for example, um, in your piece, Justin, you talk about uh, one, one of the things that's just very clear from the beginning is this kind of framework that Biden's coming to it with, where he says, listen, I'm going to, you know, prioritize interventions that don't shut down the economy. We're going to get kids back in school. Everything's going to be in person. This is going to be fine. You know, the the campaign message was like, quote, I'm not going to shut down the economy. I'm going to shut down the virus. There's going to be a return to normalcy. And we've proceeded apace to this quote unquote, safe normal that was sort of promised along this timeline that has been narrativized as sort of just moving forward, um, right? We basically had the situation where vaccines were being rolled out and we started to shift to a vaccine only strategy and we started to reopen even before vaccines were already rolled out. So to just read uh, Justin's piece from January 5th, 2022, um, quote, this tone was struck early, even before Biden assumed office. First, the transition team distanced itself from one of its scientific advisors, who in a New York Times op-ed called for a national shutdown of four to six weeks. Later, after internal debate, Biden's transition team decided not to warn the public against attending social gatherings during the 2020 holiday season, even as few were vaccinated and hospital beds were quickly filling. When Biden assumed office in January, he warned the public that there was nothing that we could do to change the trajectory of the pandemic in the next several months. And I think in the same way that this kind of message of, oh, we're just on this sort of trajectory where we can't change the virus, we can't do zero COVID, that's real unrealistic. You know, anyone who calls for zero COVID is like as bad as anti-vaxxers. You know, this is a message that is like pervasive right now. And I think it reflects a very steady and long term project of rhetorically imposing this kind of idea that there is nothing that the state can do for COVID and then it's all about personal responsibility. And ultimately, this is reflective, I think, as we've all been documenting of not some sort of new aberration in the way that we do healthcare, but more of this kind of like landscape of of just the normal process of commodifying health in the United States. And this is a process of sort of the system 
of health capitalism absorbing the COVID response. And the Biden administration has been doing a great job of keeping this moving forward apace. And I think, if anything, this these new recommendations are just sort of a shift to them maybe being more open and acknowledging it, as already saying. Maybe finally people are sort of getting the picture that this is what's going on. But in many ways, this has always been the project was the Biden administration came in promising to shift this response from the state to the private sector. And we are in the middle of that process. And it is happening, you know, regardless of what the science says, ultimately. And I mean, I think, Justin, this is something that you've you've really focused on for uh, a long time now, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with that. I, I think what's going on here in in what what some people are calling the, the fifth wave in the U.S. of COVID infection, um, it's basically like mission accomplished, but not not mission accomplished on the mission of taking care of the virus. Is mission accomplished on fully normalizing COVID uh, COVID transmission? Uh, because I I do think in these earlier attempts to shift towards not just shift towards personal personal responsibility, but to push people to to assume higher risk levels through social norms or, or you know, tr- trying to make masking a thing of the past, which has been going on uh, in, yeah. in ways subtle or not. <laughs> um, I think I think this is the wave where people genuinely don't even know that it's happening, n- not as some natural result of human psychology or whatever, but but because of these many years now of, of efforts to um, obscure and individualize and not provide any better options for most people other than exposing yourself to the virus and uh, exposing yourself to others once once you're infected. So yeah, that that's what where I think we we are now. Um, and and this is just them saying, hey, uh, the this thing we tried to do before, well, it's done now. Uh, and and I think they're they're implicitly saying that the level of death and disease we have right now is acceptable. Right. And I, I think one of the things too that is very clear is that opening schools and having no mitigations in place in schools is really the plan for the fall. It's correct? a big priority. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in, in a lot of ways, these guidelines are centered around schools. And it's frustrating because, of course, they're using the same old line of, well, we have the tools and, you know, with vaccination and with all the tools, we don't need masking in schools. We don't need to worry about quarantining. You know, we we don't need tests to stay. All we, You know, we can discourage testing. And in some sense, it's it's not only incredibly frustrating, right, that this is happening, but I, I, I'm like, I wonder what tools they actually mean, because it's not like little kids get access to Paxlovid, right? And it's not like kids are vaccinated at high numbers. Like, we have Vinay Prasad to thank for that. We have Lucy McBride to thank for that. And all of the urgency of normal people and all of the people who have been advocating really hard against child vaccination Kids, more than anyone else, don't have the tools. And to focus this phase of sort of rolling back protections in schools is pretty heinous and and pretty frustrating because it's things that are, you know, the school and and daycare guidelines are going to be really reflective of, I think, what we've been seeing happening in camps where camps really don't know what they're doing. They're telling people, well, just send kids 
you know, even if they're, um, you know, symptomatic and sick, don't test, just send them anyways, don't keep them home. And this is supposed to somehow like work through the fall in schools with higher density, you know, as the weather gets colder and people spend more time inside. We're, and this has been promised to like somehow occur without disruptions. I mean, it, it just, as I'm just laying it out, right? Like it just doesn't add up how this is even going to be possible, even if this wasn't COVID and this was just the flu, right? It would be a disaster. Yeah. And, and there's there's one, like to me, the most interesting thing about the guideline, interesting and like, uh, I don't know, morbid or, or sociological kind of way is how they talk about masks and kind yes. of like, the, the internal contradictions, um, but also so so one there there's a line that's about uh, consider not punishing students for wearing masks. Yes. Yeah, I, I have that right here. I was actually just about to bring that up. <laughs> Quote: Schools should consider flexible, non-punitive policies and practices to support individuals who choose to wear masks, regardless of the COVID nineteen community level. Uh, and and then the the second and that's gotten some attention. The the, the part that has gotten no attention uh, as, as far as I've seen, um, but is is kind of baffling uh, or, or maybe not really, is the general statement they make around masking in schools and the guidance. It starts, it doesn't straight up say, hey, masking should be a choice. It kind of just presupposes it. It's like, we recommend that students and staff should have the choice to mask, especially following the uh, community risk levels, uh, which, which are county level metrics that that you've covered before and are quite complex and are based on hospitalization and transmission, et cetera. And, and then it goes on to say, um, you shouldn't exclude disabled children from the classroom. And that might mean if there are high in an environment where there are high risk students, you might have to do mask mandates so that but like what environment doesn't have high risk students like yeah <laughs> right right no absolutely and i i think that there's like every other uh, change that we've sort of pointed out that the CDC has put forward in this guidance, there's evidence that they're sort of conceptualizing high-risk people as somehow not being um, like in and around uh, normal people, quote unquote. And I think this kind of like prioritization of, um, okay, well, let's go ahead and like protect or or put in language to say that we need to protect students um, who choose to mask, right? The framing of it as a kind of negative problem in the first place is just highly discouraging. I mean, I think that there's already so many um, pressures that kids are having not to mask socially that's going on that like the fact that the CDC is sort of fully rolling this back and then pointing towards public opinion and saying, well, we're just trying to reflect public opinion. We have no influence on it ever, how could we possibly have influence on it? So they're issuing these guidance uh, changes, which are going to, again, like continue to normalize much higher levels of spread that frame masking as this kind of negative choice that we have to you know, protect people, the, the small minority who choose to do it. Um, and we are beginning a brand new school year with the majority of the country in the highest level on the transmission map. The old map is angry red, you know, the pastel map. It's nice yellow and orange right now. We've hit the second highest rate of pediatric hospitalizations in recent weeks. And again, the majority of kids are not vaccinated. And here we are basically trying to normalize even higher levels of transmission in schools and promising that somehow things are not going to get disrupted. I think this is why it's actually really instructive to look at some of the things that is not coming out of what the CDC is saying itself, but what some of the people who have been 
pushing for the CDC to do things like this have been saying in response to this. Um, I'm thinking specifically of uh, pretty shortly after the CDC released these uh, guidelines, Emily Oster, show favorite, did a blog post on her Substack where the like the the subtitle of the the post was in all caps no quarantines exclamation point lena wen also on the same day that the guidelines came out did a you know washington post op-ed praising them for heralding a change to a new normal and i find some of her commentary actually rather revealing about this she says for example um she you know complains of she basically she sets up like uh, well masking is no longer required if you're vaccinated and then says quote masking in areas of high transmission remains part of the guidance which schools will not follow anyway oh my um, god <laughs> then then says um quote those opposed to the CDC easing restrictions warn that the new policies will lead to super spreader events at schools they are right <laughs> but daily outbreaks already occur at conferences, weddings, restaurants, gyms, and workplaces, uh, etc. Instead, everyone engaging, spiders? everyone engaging in public life should be aware that those around them could be infected with the coronavirus. And it's just, you know, if you're vulnerable, don't forget to not engage in public life. Well, that, I mean, she basically she she does very literally say in this, if you're immunocompromised or or you're otherwise uh, somehow vulnerable, you know, make sure like then masking is still for you or, I, or whatever. You know, it's like, how do these people think all the vulnerable people are like making all of the money to hide inside all the time? Where do they think we're all hiding? I don't. Ugh, God, they also literally have gone from schools aren't super spreaders to schools are super spreaders. But does it really matter? <laughs> They're just basically in, in, encouraging people to go out uh, into the world and infect people. Th this is just kind of like, I think, nudging people in that direction. Uh, have COVID, wh whatever, go out and do your thing. Well, and go to work sick and stuff. I mean, it occurs to me that it just it feels in some ways, at least these new this new sort of easing or whatever of the guidelines feels a bit like we we're saying that we are responding to the conditions such as they are meeting people where they are as it were but we're not acknowledging of course that we have created those conditions specifically um for example in terms of testing you know it occurs to me that it's you know very interesting that at the same time that they're saying okay now just keep in mind schools you don't have to test and except for under you know these circumstances you might want to do some testing when for example if you look at the um that they released this uh you know biden plan for what they're going to do in terms of uh reopening so like what the school year is going to look like etc in terms of uh covid aid and things like that and if you look it says you know we have they say very triumphantly we have secured you know five million rapid tests and 5 million PCR tests. And those are going to be available for school districts to order and things like that. And, you know, that's all well and good, but there are something like 50 million kids in K through 12 right. in, in the United States. And that's just the kids, not the staff and everything like that. And when you consider, for example, that, I mean, there was that study that just came out that showed that essentially when, frankly, right after the community level system was introduced, when Massachusetts dropped its masking requirement for schools and all but two school districts dropped masking, there was an immediate increase in new positive COVID tests 
in both the school and the surrounding community of the places that had dropped the mask mandates in the schools. And that effect was found to be more pronounced among the staff too. That, right. but that it's not just that in general, there are more infection and transmission happening in the school. It was disproportionately also happening like more and more of the teachers and staff were testing positive. So this is just, you know, again, I mean, it's a night, it's a nightmare, but also it's just, right. uh, if you're not, if you also know that you're not planning to provide any any of the quote unquote tools that we're supposed to rely on, then you know, asking people to use the tools less, I guess, makes sense as a horrible, you know, Faustian strategy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like saying, you know, we've got to center equity by burning the whole neighborhood down, not just the one house. <laughs> that would be equitable. It would, yeah. right? It would. So that's that study. First of all, that study was led by my FXB colleague, Tori Cowger, who's really excellent epidemiologist and um, works at works at FXB, but has been stationed in the Boston Public Health Department. Um, And one of the things they were able to do in the study was like extrapolate from how long absences tended to be with COVID infection. And they found that rescinding the mask mandate led to a huge number of days of absences uh, that, that could have otherwise been avoided. Uh, so these arguments around learning loss and we need to get back to normal life by removing all public health measures are bullshit because they never consider that getting COVID is actually bad, even solely on the basis of being in school physically and and now that there's no remote options in many cases um, disrupting learning so really it's we there there is a battle over two different new normals and one new normal involves public health measures that um, make it so fewer people get sick and die and fewer people miss school for illness and another new normal where we we just kind of ignore the disease process in a public way, though people are still affected in their their private life. Uh, right. And one of the things that's sort of entered into the conversation this week as well uh, are some comments from Ashish Jha, which have been elaborating on something that he has mentioned a couple times over the last couple of months, which has been about this impending transition to the commercialization of COVID and this sort of shift that they've been signaling, not just in the um, vaccine market, but in terms of sort of all tests and treatment, um, that this is sort of something that in the the medium to short term, the Biden administration is prioritizing, pushing this stuff into the private market. And I think when you think about that coupled with, Justin, as you're saying, there's just going to be categorically there is going to be spread as a result of these decisions, as you're saying. It's bullshit to say that this is not going to disrupt school. To to think about how this is going to collide now with the shift of you know COVID being turned into not just a personal responsibility framework, but something that is mediated through the financial technology of you know personal uh, private insurance, I think is going to be really devastating. Yeah. Um, so for, first of all, part of the justification for the changing CDC guidance was we have the tools. So a, a, li- a line that should be familiar to a- anyone at, the, at this yes. point who's been, <laughs> who's been following government communications over the last year. A- and the tools they're really referring to at this point are vaccination, boosters, uh, Paxlovid, pharmaceutical treatments that mm-hmm. uh, either prevent illness or, or treat illness uh, w- once it occurs. And so the justification for this shift to the extent it is a shift, 
is coming at a time when the accessibility of tools, not just accessibility, the availability of tools is being threatened. So Ja has over the, the since basically since he started his role in the White House, been warning that money to buy uh, boosters, money to buy Paxlovid is running out. And uh, he's been lobbying Congress to get some more money for that unsuccessfully at this point. But it, it hasn't really been a big public campaign. They haven't been willing to expend much political capital like inflation yeah. like the the inflation reduction act has been the priority um so what's what's going to happen now is that we there has been an order placed for these omicron specific boosters and they've not ordered enough for the entire eligible population so the 260 million people who've been vaccinated only something like a third would be able to get the boosters uh, under the status quo uh, with, with the money that's been allocated for it. And that creates some a really perverse condition in my mind where few people are getting boosted and it creates this disincentive to even for governments to even promote boosters to the highest yeah. risk, most marginalized populations because there's rationing. And I think a lot of governments will find that it's more politically uh, beneficial to them to let the people who want it most to get it rather than the people who need it most. And, and then a uh, similar thing, Paxlovid funding running out. And if this gets shifted to, uh, if, if the money runs out, so Ja actually mentioned something that ha- I think hasn't been getting enough attention. It was very brief uh, in his statement to the chamber of commerce, uh, which again, like that, that's uh the audience is is noteworthy. Yeah. Uh, he he did a uh, interview with the Chamber of Commerce that was somehow um, more combative than the one that he also did with Bernie Sanders in the yeah. last week. So God. yeah, uh, so it's it's not just that. Hey, this this might be um, something that has to be purchased through the private healthcare system and through insurance. That's there's no guarantee that that's even going to be that's even going to happen because under the status quo, you would need regulatory changes. Um, I think as is there's no purchasing structure for the vaccines yet that are not done through national governments. So it's, if if the money runs out this fall and if they don't do the things they need to do to allow private insurers to, to even purchase them and, and reimburse them. Um, yeah, there's, there's no guarantee, uh, like some, something needs to change. Uh, I mean, I have a hard time imagining that they, you know, if, if they're trying to kick it to the private market, that they won't, you know, make arrangements to make sure that those things happen. But I do think it is important to highlight that what the, the thing that you're both referencing here, the specific quote is so jaw said, um, this week to the U S chamber of commerce in a little, he did a live stream event that was about an hour of him taking, Building various questions about the COVID response in the future and basically, uh, you know, to to the audience of the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, And he said during this, quote, one of the things we've spent a lot of time thinking about in the last many months, and we're going to continue this work, and you'll hear more from the administration on this, is getting out of that acute emergency phase where the U.S. government is buying the vaccines, buying the treatments, buying the diagnostic tests. We need to get out of that business over the long. And so my hope is that in 2023, um, you're going to see the commercialization of almost all of these products. Some of it is actually going to begin this fall. Uh, in the days and weeks ahead, you're going to see commercialization of some of these things. So we just move them into the regular healthcare system. 
But this business of kind of day-to-day running of a pandemic, that needs to transition. And we are working very hard to make sure that transition is in a very kind of uh, orderly, a very transparent way so everybody sees it. Um, That work is happening. And as I said, just to give you a bit of a timeline, some of it you'll see in the fall, most of it you're going to see in 2023. So the government gets out of this business. And I just want to point out, I want to talk about this a little bit more because I think this is mm-hmm. a really, this is in my mind, I think more significant than what the CDC's, again, not to downplay the CDC guideline changes, but this is, I think, a more significant um, moment here, actually, in a way, um, which is, this is, they said, in a way, they said last week with the CDC guidance, we have the tools. And now they're saying, you know, by, by the way, about those tools, uh, they're not going to be free anymore. And also, even though it was already hard to get them uh, and in some cases, it, they weren't free, even though they should have been free. Uh, you're going to you're going to have to pay for them if you want them. You're probably going to need insurance if you want to get them or you'll need to you know, pay for some degree out of pocket um, to be able to get them, even though it's also going to be your personal responsibility to make sure that you are availing yourselves of the of them. And I just want to really quickly bef- before we get into this too much, I do want to point out this is something that he also basically said almost exactly the same thing in June. Mm-hmm. We clipped it for yeah. an episode called Jaw Watch, where he we were talking about uh, part of that episode. We talked about an interview that he did with Bob Walker that was not mm-hmm. really very widely uh, watched or anything um, where he said basically pretty much the same thing where in con- talks with people uh, in Congress, he was saying look, you know, we're probably not going to commercialize it by the fall, different than what he says says now, apparently. Um, but, you know, by 2023, by 2023, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kick it to the private market. Right. Well, I was sort of curious when I had heard this reported uh, exactly what the context of him saying this was. Like, it was, you know, it was, I was curious how it was being brought up because I remember talking about it in June Um but the the way that the Chamber of Commerce interviewer tees it up is basically this like softball question at the very end of the it, this is not <laughs> like this is something that was like he was yeah. trying to make the headline point of the conversation. How do you plan for a post pandemic world? So how do you plan for that science and how do you plan for that social science? And so maybe I'll give you the last word on, you know, how you're thinking about what we've all been hoping and praying for, which is the new normal. But it gets brought up at the very end is like, OK, what, what is like the, the transition to like a post covid uh, world going to look like? And this is it's actually then when he brings it up, not when he's talking about like what the strategy is. Um, you know, going forward and, and the sort of persistence of the virus is sort of brought up in this completely separate uh, way. And he mentions it sort of in the context of, you know, the, the, the fact that um, they had tried to uh, get more money from Congress, but it wasn't forthcoming and that uh, they were shifting money around to, to go to vaccines for the fall. And it really does sort of illustrate that, you know, if you wanted somebody who was going to actually lobby for meaningful like what a meaningful, enduring public health strategy would look like. Uh, you should have chosen somebody else uh, besides Jaw, because he his number one talent is uh, not just accepting half measures, but uh, pushing for quarter measures and then telling everybody that it's actually better uh, this way. I mean, it is really horrifying that on the same, really at the same time that he's saying that we have the tools 
what he's and, and he's saying, look, you'll be able to go out and get, you know, the, the vaccine or treatments just like you would any the way he puts it, like just like you would any other treatment. Right. Just like because, of course, we know that people famously consume the appropriate amount uh, of healthcare. That That's something that everybody uh, can do. Um, but it does sort of reflect this. I mean, I'm actually curious about your broader perspective. Justin, is that, you know, it seems like there's a bunch of people within the public health field also like going to bat for this guy. And it's like, does this reflect like is is basically, you know, are more public health people becoming like jaw pilled uh, in this way? Is this like wh- where is their traction among people who actually know what the fuck they're doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the people in public health who are most visible to those outside the field, I don't think represent mainstream public health opinion. There are certainly people who are deferential to Ja on the same page as him or view him. I I would say maybe things are changing, but when he was first appointed, they viewed him as a a sign like something to be cautiously optimistic about his appointment. Uh, okay, here here's someone who has actual public health credentials, and he's not really doing anything very different from his predecessors. I don't think I don't think he's shaping policy in the same way that Zions did. Um, it, it's funny. He also uh, in, in it, there's been a few pieces about him recently for whatever reason, uh, and, and he basically told one publication, I'm forgetting which one it, it was now, that he has no power. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I don't think the way public health as a field is set up, it's basically, and, and I was just reading a, a, a great piece about this written almost 20 years ago now, uh, schools of public health, and, and we've talked about this a bit on the show before, schools of public health are set up as mechanisms for extracting federal funding from the National Institutes of Health in the form of grants. <laughs> That is the thing they do. And there's this great line in this article by, by Elizabeth Fee. She said of schools of public health, it is only on rare occasions and more or less by accident that schools of public health harbor public intellectuals or effective av- public advocates for the public's health. And I think that just puts it perfectly. Um, you, don't, you don't really have many um, voices who, who are, are being uh, listened to or, or, or feel even comfortable speaking out about these things. Right. And I mean, honestly, I'm glad that we got a chance to really uh, talk about these comments from Ja, because that's how I see these CDC recommendations and these guideline changes more than anything else, is actually fitting into a broader framework of getting the things in place that are necessary to transition this into a normal day-to-day status quo sort of health capitalist issue. And I think what we've seen in in so many of the framings and small changes um, is ultimately like it's not that there's some big ideological shift in how the pandemic is being run or that this is like a, a market change in how you know we're we're thinking about the pandemic. These are sort of the necessary steps that we've been making all along to you know craft COVID into the kind of mundane um, public health phenomenon that becomes this essentially sort of like extractive capitalist machine. And I think what we're seeing right now is not only just the process of transition into this commercialized or commodified 
um, new frontier of COVID. But I think it's also trying to, I think, assert a kind of a, a moment of like cleavage where the state is like somehow no longer responsible and this stuff doesn't bear on their sort of public opinion uh, ratings anymore. And I think that that's a big part of what Jaws' role is. I, I believe his you know, statement that he has no power. He's a, a PR representative for them. He's a puppet, right? Like he's out there um, and his role is not to set policy or to set guidance or to advise. It seems like his role is to, you know, convince people to accept these compromises and to accept and themselves internalize this, you know, normalization of just really high levels of needless sickness ultimately at the end of the day. And so I think it, the way to think about these CDC guideline changes is not as some you know, big shift, but as part of a broader process of sort of building the COVID private market. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. And th- thinking back on on what we were discussing earlier, like the periodization uh, of COVID, uh, which is hard to do in real time. But I, I would think if we months from now or years from now, we we may look back at uh, summer 2022 as the point where. The pandemic was ongoing, but successfully hidden in plain sight uh, in terms of people not knowing they were in a wave and not uh, or being confused about what that meant and what they're supposed to do uh, as CDC basically uh, affirming that people aren't supposed to do anything um, mm-hmm. and, and affirming they're not supposed to know either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, with uh, that's the most important thing. It's not just about people. You yeah. Know. Yeah. And um and and then finally with uh, what he's calling commercialization, but really is commoditization. I mean, it's already commercial. There are already companies making money right. off of it. It's a co- commodification uh, of the tools. Um, and, and yeah, I, I do I do think that this is a turning point in that way. In that, you know, I I, I often you know I, I see these people writing on Twitter and media, whatever day day after day. It's like. We need to end public health interventions. Like what, like what, what purpose other than self-promotion, like what purpose does it say, does it serve to say, if you're say Joseph Allen, um, (laughs) we can't close schools in the fall uh, to try to prevent COVID spread. Um, That was never on the table, but I think the purpose that that serves is that like people, like people have an innate sense of like not wanting to get sick or not wanting to get other people sick. So this very sort of artificial process um, of of normalization is happening and, and but really swimming against the tide of like what people want. Um, and, and this this is finally when when they they become fully successful and and it could who knows what happens epidemiologically. Um, right. Could, we could get more severe variants. We could get uh, be in a situation where vaccines are less effective, where uh, Paxlovid resistance happens. Um, but barring any of that, I, I really think like in a few months, a year from now, like it will be even stranger for, for people like us to, to keep, uh, going on talking about, about COVID strange in the, in the sense of like how mainstream society perceives it. Well, and I mean, what happened, the thing is, this is the important part about the privatization of kicking um vaccines and treatments for covid to the private market is you know things have already been quite horrible obviously over the course of the covid pandemic the one as as much as we have criticized the response one light silver lining 
was the fact that a lot of things like COVID vaccines and treatments were not exactly treated, you know, 100% in the way that we do every other everything else. health right. condition or illness or yeah, exa- everything else, right. That we'd treat everything else in the United States. Um, and so it will be a, you know, if you want to talk about profound shifts, when that happens, when that transition actually happens, it does not just mean, you know, all of a sudden, in addition to being sick a couple times a year, you're also, you know, having to pay for, um, you know, pay a shitty copay for a booster or whatever, and basically being fucking disincentivized from then getting a booster. Um, it also means that basically what has been happening essentially over the course of the pandemic will get worse, which is literally the people who are surplused in society, the people who are, whether it's medically vulnerable or just like people who are poor or whatever, those populations will continue to bear the worst of the brunt of this disease. And basically so that, I don't know what, so that um, if you, you know, if you take, Lena Wen, for instance, to her word, basically so that like the bourgeoisie can keep do- doing like bourgeois stuff, essentially, so that they can kind of carry on as though everything was normal. And uh, that's profoundly a tragedy. But it also means that potentially the way in which things are bad when COVID vaccines and treatments get commodified could be, you know, qualitatively very different and, a you know, actually marking sort of a, you know, quote unquote, new phase of the pandemic that we have not seen before and that I think we are just fundamentally not ready for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you uh, it's it's funny now that you put it that way Artie, it occurs to me that vaccines were the the way that vaccines were sort of treated and and protected from being maybe fully commodified in the way that I, everything else is was one of the more uh one of a series of things that were maybe more ideologically dangerous where capital was concerned. That like you put that out there and it's like, "Oh, okay." That's, you know, the White House maybe has to hold their nose for a while. Um, or, you know, uh, you know, insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies maybe have to hold their nose uh, for a while uh, and accept that. But they're like, there's got to be an end date to this. Um, you know, just like there had to be an end date for you know, the ability to not not just by law, but by norm and custom for people to be able to stay home from work when they're sick, all of those things, you know, were things that for one reason or another to not bring on a full scale, you know, breakdown of society had to be tolerated. But then there also had to be a a sort of end date. Right. And so like that, that occurs to me, it's like that's sort of where we are, is that like there's some there's some, uh, you know, forces in society that are now like, OK, we're 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 cashing in at this point. Right. We're 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 calling we're we're, uh, you know, we're we're bringing back the product and we're, you know, going back to uh, what we always demanded from the beginning. And it's funny, actually, it kind of reminds me of uh, something from what we were talking to Abby about on Monday, which was Angles's condition of the working class in England. In one part of it, he's talking about how um, there are so many eye disorders that are sort of developed out of. (laughs) the lace trade and of all the fine detail work and uh, essentially workplace conditions of people who make lace um, and how that leads to, you know, just a lot of suffering and illness. So Angles writes, 
Quote, this is the price at which society purchases for the fine ladies of the bourgeoisie the pleasure of wearing lace. A reasonable price, truly. Only a few thousand blind working men, some consumptive laborers' daughters, a sickly generation of the vile multitude bequeathing its debility to the equally vile children and children's children. Our English bourgeoisie will lay the report of the government commission aside indifferently, and wives and daughters will deck themselves in lace as before. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would highly recommend to anyone who has not heard it or is not a patron, um, yeah, that episode that you're referencing, Social Determinants of Health, that we released on Monday, if you want more stuff like that. But yeah, and I mean, you know, as we're saying, this is not so much like a sort of huge or market shift as it's a continuation of a much broader um, and long-term process of the normalization of COVID. And one that does not have to keep happening, exactly. by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Justin, was there anything else you wanted to cover today that we didn't get a chance to get to? Sure. I mean, i just say that there, there's like another way. <laughs> um I, I think at this point, like people are really confused about what what a good response would even look like, and I think that there's certainly like the debates to be had about that. But I would say like we need a really strong program of pharmaceutical interventions, especially vaccination and boosters. We need a regulatory framework to keep workplaces and other other environments uh, at lower risk of exposure, and we need to bring back economic and social supports to allow people to quarantine and isolate and. That sort of thing, and and we we need uh, rights for disabled people who who whose living situations or working situations no longer work for them. And this is something uh, we can build towards in the long term through organizing. It's not you know it's it's ne- it's never exactly clear when you're in a moment that looks like a moment of defeat, like the current moment, uh, how how you achieve those things. But it's always through long and painstaking organizing that is able to bear fruit when when the political and economic situation is is ripe for that. Um, so, yeah, I would say don't don't give up hope. Um, we, we need to be thinking about how to do a better job and working to to fight for more uh, protections. I think that's a great place to leave it for today. Justin, thank you so much again for coming on. It's always so great to have you join the panel. Great to be on as always. And if you want to follow Justin on Twitter, he is at jfeldman underscore epi. Patrons, we will catch you early next week in the bonus feed. For everyone else, we will see you later in the week. If you want to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to that episode with Abby that we talked about a couple times in this one. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
Content warning, Emily Oster. Quarantines for exposure. This is the big change. The new guidelines suggest no quarantine for COVID exposure. This includes both in-school and out-of-school exposure. Prior guidelines suggested a 10-day quarantine or a test to stay as an alternative. So doing away with this is huge. But it did lead to concern from parents of the under two set. In particular, since that group cannot mask, the guidelines are a bit ambiguous about whether they still need to quarantine. A lot of you sent me panicked messages about that. I have good news. I wrote to the CDC directly about it, and the spokesperson replied, quote, those who are exposed do not need to quarantine, including those who cannot mask, e.g. children two years and younger, students with disabilities who might have difficulty masking. Schools and early childhood education programs can determine if they would like to use testing in these scenarios, or the other options include masking of those who are able to in would-be close contexts or implementing other layers of prevention, including distancing and ventilation. No quarantine. Possibly do some kind of testing or just do other things like better ventilation. So yay, no more quarantines. What if my childcare center doesn't believe the guidelines eliminate quarantine for the under two set? First, try forwarding this newsletter. Hopefully the quote from the CDC above will help. If it doesn't, I'd encourage them to reach out to the CDC directly. 